Thank you, Dr. Ayler. Always a pleasure. So I thought maybe this wouldn't be a bad topic. It's really going to be talking about a little bit more than genitourinary tract infections. Um, later on, we'll talk about uh, some of the updated STI recommendations as well. And I'm sure that when you look at you know, this topic of, oh gosh, genitourinary tract infections, that this is probably your experience over the last 20 years is, oh, here we go. We're going to talk about the usual stuff. And yes, we are going to talk about kind of the usual stuff, but when you look at um, what people call a urinary tract infection, it, it means lots of different things to different people. Um, generally, most of the time people are talking about cystitis, whether it's uncomplicated or if it gets complicated. Um, so you can have a lot of things going on. I'm not going to really talk about prostatitis or epididymitis per se with this, um, and we're not going to really discuss CAUTI. Um, and then there's this whole topic of non-UTI infections that wish they were UTI because, and we've all seen them at some point, somebody gets admitted and the urine is positive, it's got white cells in it, and it grows a bacteria. And they decide that they were going to treat this, quote, UTI when, in fact, they had a pneumonia or something else, um, which they do discover later. But uh, so that's why I'm saying non-UTI that wish they were UTI because it would be much easier to treat. Um, and the other issue is sometimes a misdiagnosis, and we'll talk about a little of that as we go along. And then just sometimes the collection techniques. Whenever you're looking at a urine uh, and the microscopic don't forget to look at the squamous epithelial cell count because a lot of these, as you probably have seen, I mean, you get epi counts of 11 to 21 or whatever, and it's it's a worthless urine specimen. And if it grows something, what do you do with it? So those are all things that factor into this. And uh, some of this I'm going to be preaching to the choir, but um, uh, nonetheless, we'll we'll move on. <clears throat> the urinary tract is, as you see in the picture, it starts down here in the urethra and goes up into the bladder and up into the kidneys. That's the urinary tract infection. Uh, if you're going to actually do evaluations and if you want to get paid, especially in private practice, you, you better know the correct ICD-10 code for what you're treating. Um, if you're treating cystitis, it's cystitis. If it's acute cystitis, then label it as such. You get paid more. If it's a, acute cystitis with hematuria, label it as that. And if you know the bacteria, you can put that in. Here, if you're doing encounters, it, it's just an easy way to pick the most common things. If you're not sure uh, in that encounter box where you're looking at adding uh, to that encounter what the conditions are, if you type in B, 95, that pulls up a list of gram-positive bacteria. It's not all-inclusive, but it pulls up more common ones. And if you do B96, those are the gram-negatives. Um, you can also type in ESBL, and it will put in ESBL for you. Um, you can put in antibiotic allergies. You can put all those kind of things in. And if you're in private practice, each thing like that you put in gets you more reimbursement. So a UTI uh, that's just you know, and that's it, won't get you hardly anything except headaches. Um, but these are very common. You've had time to read over on the right-hand side, and I'm not going to read it to you, except the bottom line is about a fifth of people that go to an ED, this is why, that they have a, either a known or a presumed infection, probably a cystitis, but it may not be. Um, the first thing to talk about is acute uncomplicated cystitis. 
Um, so obviously you need to get a history and um, to ask some questions and usually they will tell you what's going on. Um, are they having any issues that sound like that it could be a cystitis? Are they having pain, uh, either suprapubic or lower abdominal pain? Um, if they're having costovertebral angle tenderness, that's probably something else that's higher up in the genitourinary tract. Um, and then I have, it's in italics, a pelvic exam. Well, if you're thinking acute cystitis, you wouldn't think of doing a pelvic exam. However, is it really cystitis? Is this more of a cervicitis or maybe a PID that's going on? So you're going to need a little bit of history. Uh, the age of the individual, uh, in this case uh, of the woman, is going to be really important because, you know, could this be a sexually transmitted infection? So then you'd need to ask some of the other questions we'll get to a little bit later about sexual partners and, um, you know, urethral symptoms, et cetera. So for uncomplicated cystitis, making sure that it's actually cystitis um, and not something else is really important, as we mentioned. Um, so for uncomplicated cystitis, then generally what uh, you would like to ascertain is if they've had painful urina urination, yes, that's dysuria. You'd be surprised when you ask some of your colleagues what dysuria is. That's not the definition necessarily you would get, but that's, that's what we're asking. Does it burn when you pee? Very bluntly, that's what it is. If it's been going on less than a week, then it's acute dysuria. Um, if you're looking at a dipstick, you might see um, trace urine leukocytes or maybe a little bit higher. Uh, you may or may not see nitrites. Uh, if you don't have a dipstick, uh, basically it's dysuria. And if it's in a, a female, then uh, dysuria frequency in the absence of a vaginal discharge. That doesn't necessarily mean that just because they haven't noticed a vaginal discharge that they might not have one. So again, it goes back to age and whether you think that this could be a, a, an STI, could this be chlamydia, could this be gonorrhea, um, that may make you do a little bit more of an exam and perhaps a bimanual uh, and a speculum exam. That's why getting the history is really important and asking the appropriate questions. Uh, you'd like to get for this uh, a midstream urine because um, when you're looking at getting a urine, and most of the time people are going to give you a cup and say pee in the cup, and they're not going to tell you initial midstream uh, with that. But just remember that the initial uh, urine that comes out is essentially washing out the urethra. So if this was more of a urethritis from something, then that's what you're getting. So if you're really looking at a cystitis, you want what's coming from the bladder, and that would be more of a midstream urine collection. Um, that's what we should be getting, but you know a lot of this is not a midstream. It's going to be just the initial uh, urine as well. So you want to see um, you know, if there's any white cells in that. If you're seeing white cell casts, then you're already understanding that this is going to be more of an upper tract infection, probably more of a pyelonephritis. Uh, urine culture for a, a, acute, uncomplicated cystitis, you really don't need. Um, when might you want to do that? That if it's a complicated infection, is this recurrent? Um, if they have persistent symptoms following treatment, uh, perhaps the antibiotic you chose wasn't um, the best one. Maybe there's resistance going on. Um, or if they have, again, symptoms that recur less than a month after treatment, something's not right and you really do want to know what the organism is to make sure that there's not resistance going on um, 
or is there you know, just something else that you haven't considered? Uh, and now we're getting into evaluating and eliminating what some of the issues might be. So with this, it's uh, described as empiric antibiotic treatment. And you all know these because we've talked about them uh, over the course of the last year, especially if you're doing uh, ASP, is the ones that are recommended nitrofurantoin, uh, trimethoprim sulfa, uh, phosphomycin, uh, you can use it for uncomplicated cystitis. It's a three gram sachet that you reconstitute in water uh, or your favorite drink, if you'd like. Um, most of the data with phosphomycin in the past has been with E. coli. And realistically, if you're going to use it for, um, for other gram negatives, it'd probably be better to have susceptibility testing. Um, it's also, if somebody had to buy it, it's more expensive than trimethoprim sulfa and nitrofurantoin. Uh, quinlins are also very uh, effective in short-day regimens, so three-day regimens or so. But as you well know, there's lots of issues with that you see down below that. One of the things we don't talk about too much is dysglycemia. So it is something else to, to worry about, but you know, everyone worries about QTC prolongation. My other concern is that you know, using fluoroquinolones, they're probably the least effective at managing C. diff, so they allow C. diff to uh, go from spores to active infection. Um, and obviously, resistance to fluoroquinolones is an ongoing issue with lots of bacteria, especially gram negatives. Um, Beta-lactam agents that you see some of these listed here um, are not the first choice, but if you can't use the others for whatever the reason, then you might want to pick um, one of those. But there's two that you should really not use for empiric treatment. That's amoxicillin or ampicillin because the spectrum of activity is, is not that broad and there's um, just a fair amount of resistance to both amox and ampicillin. So they're really not recommended for empiric treatment of uncomplicated cystitis. Then you get on to complicated cystitis. Well, what is complicated cystitis? Um, it's the opposite of uncomplicated. Uh, it's where you have a structural functional or metabolic abnormality and just some of these, but not all of them. Uh, do you have a polycystic kidney? Uh, is it a solitary kidney? So someone's had one resected, just transplanted. Do they have significant diabetes, chronic kidney disease. Is there an indwelling catheter, uh, neurogenic bladder, uh, any of those kind of things who are elderly, male, um, young children, pregnancy, or a history of recurrent UTI? Um, these, it's really recommended to get a urine culture and susceptibility so that you know what you're dealing with because it's now complicated, uh, which may require you to treat a little bit longer. And it's really important that you know what's causing it. Um, usually it's going to be uh, a lot of gram negatives that are associated with this, occasionally enterococcine staph, but usually at higher bacterial counts, uh, 10 to the fifth or greater. So you see some of those listed on here. Uh, e. coli is um, involved with uh, complicated cystitis in about a third of the cases from the uh, CID journal that was talking about um, urinary tract infections. So, you know, you, you treat for what you would think would be there. So using something a little broader, but um, that really becomes problematic when you're looking at oral agents to try and treat some of these, especially if there's resistance issues. Um, and especially with uh, ESBLs, we all deal with that. Um, you know, what do we do with that? Well, you might be able to use phosphomycin uh, given the, the three-dose regimen, if you will. Uh, but again, most of that data came with E. coli. So 
it limits what we can use orally, uh, but certainly there's um, intravenous formulations that we can use. We really do need to get a urine culture prior to treatment. Um, the treatment, depending on what the complication is, is seven to 14 days. And then after you treat them, uh, if they're doing fine, do you need to get a urine culture? This has been looked at by a wide variety of papers. Um, and, and the answer is really, if they're doing okay, they probably don't need it. Because if something grows, do you have to treat it? And the answer is not necessarily. Um, but again, this goes back um, to what could be causing a complication. Could it be a, a nephrolithiasis? Is there a stone? Is there a struvite stone? If there's a struvite stone, it's probably going to be recurrent. Because once that you get struvite stones, you get bacteria that, um, that form around these bacteria. These are urea-splitting organisms. And the treatment of choice for that is get rid of the stone, which is easier said than done. So again, looking at this, looking for stones, looking at other complicating things uh, that maybe require treatment other than just treating the bacteria in the urine. So again, that's, that's part of the complicated cystitis workup. Uh, just touching on recurrent UTIs, uh, definition of this was at least uh, three UTIs per year or two UTIs in the last six months. Um, this was uh, the guidelines that came out of the European Association of Urology uh, a couple of years ago now uh, that you can find and download. And it looked at age-related associations, and this is all looking in women where the, more of these um, complications come from. And you see in young and premenstrual women uh, looking at things that would make sense, um, uh, some of this being sexually associated with sexual intercourse or a new sexual partner, uh, a use of a spermicide like nanoxinol 9, which is not recommended anymore. Uh, those are very inflammatory and could cause urethritis just from nanoxinol um, 9 itself. Um, a mother with a history of, of UTIs, especially recurrent UTIs, might suggest, especially in childhood, of uh, problems with uh, having your real reflux, and uh, maybe that's an issue that might have to be surgically corrected. So there's other things to look at. And there's old data that looked at blood group antigen secretor status, where that people who secreted um, antigens from their blood groups uh, tended not to get UTIs as frequently than people that didn't secrete. Uh, we really don't hear too much about that anymore, but it's um, one of the things that's talked about. But to be honest, I don't know that I've ever really tried to screen for that. Uh, and then the other side, what I would mention to you, there's a lot of things I don't want to read them all to you, but one of the things that's not that uncommon is having atrophic vaginitis due to estrogen deficiency, uh, where there's not as much um, estrogen, so not as much lubrication, um, and that can just really cause more symptoms. And the treatment of that is obviously not antibiotics, but estrogen replacement. So a lot of things for to think about with all this. Um, and then trying to, for women that do have this as an ongoing issue, you can try some non-antimicrobial prophylaxis, including, as we mentioned, topical vaginal estrogens in postmenopausal women, uh, cranberry juice, uh, the data is kind of still back and forth with that. And the first question is always, do you like cranberry juice? Because if they hate it, they probably won't use it. Um, but it, it can work, and it's really looking at acidifying the urine to a degree. Um, the, there's a lot of conflicting data with probiotics and demanos, uh, which some um, papers looked at very positively, but some of the more recent ones weren't quite as positive with that.
Uh, antibiotic prophylaxis, uh, we generally don't recommend that, but again, uh, postcoital, um, the old um, discussion of honeymoon cystitis, uh, and especially during pregnancy, is something that you can consider. Um, that could even be self-diagnosed and self-treated because in some studies, women were just as good, if not better, than their providers at knowing when they had uh, a urinary tract infection or a cystitis. Um, you could use methenamine, but only if the urine pH is less than 5.5, so you have to acidify the urine, or using a very short course of uh, oral antibiotics. If it tends to be uh, if those don't work really well, then you're probably going to need a, a more of a formal workup to find out, is there something else going on that's problematic? Um, pilo, we've all seen pyelonephritis. Uh, it certainly can be um, kind of mundane for some people, cause more of just back pain. But we've all seen people end up coming in with sepsis, septic shock, and sometimes not surviving if they have comorbidities because of acute pilo. Obviously, you need a urine culture to know what's the, going to be the most effective antibiotic with this. The other question is, and we see it um, probably more frequently than it needs to happen, but um, getting imaging and somebody who that you think has pilo, is there a reason to really do that? And I've just listed some of the ones that people are, are talking about is, you know, obviously if they have sepsis or septic shock, um, it's really looking to see is there a complication of pilo? Do they have uh, an intrarenal or perinephric abscess? Do they have stones? And that's why also with just getting a, a CT to see if you see a stone that may be blocking, um, giving them uh, hydronephrosis uh, or, or something else. Urine pH of seven or higher might make you think about uh, urea splitting organisms, especially if it's eight to nine. Uh, and a, a new decrease in GFR to uh, 40 or less might suggest a significant obstruction somewhere. So, I mean, could they have something else going on um, that's not necessarily a stone, but could they have a malignancy or something else going on? Uh, or is it polycystic kidney disease that's never been diagnosed? Uh, subsequent imaging uh, is recommended in those people who just don't get better. My thought was, um, and his paper says 24 to 48 hours after therapy, but generally, I'd recommended somewhere between you know 48 to 96 hours because that's when if they're the fever's not coming down and they're not feeling better, then you really do want to make sure they don't have an intrarenal or perinephric abscess because you don't have source control. So making sure that's not an occurrence. Um, I think we all know about treating for acute pilo that um, we see a lot of this being E. coli. And what we see is more E. coli resistant to quinolones and trimethoprim sulfa. And actually, if you look at some of the antibiograms around, we see aminoglycoside resistance with E. coli, uh, which is interesting because we're not using as much aminoglycosides as we used to. Um, if you have pilo, do you have to be admitted to be treated? The answer is no. Uh, if people can take oral antibiotics and they're not that sick, you certainly can treat them as an outpatient. The guidelines recommend and other additional papers. This is a nice review in New England Journal from a few years ago now. Of, uh, if somebody's seen at an ED or at a walk-in clinic, if they have um, some uh, injectable antibiotics, that you could give an initial dose of an aminoglycoside, ceftriaxone, or ertapenem, which I'm not too comfortable using right off the bat. But um, so you could give them an IV antibiotic and then um, 
make sure that you get a urinalysis and a urine culture before you give them the antibiotic and then give them uh, an antibiotic you think is going to be effective so that you can uh, adjust that if it's not going to be susceptible. But obviously, if they're throwing up, you can't give them oral antibiotics and they're going to have to get IV antibiotics. And then uh, look when they're more um, or, or, or a little less um, more stable, I'm sorry, that um, you can assess then to see once they stabilize, can you then discharge them and finish out the treatment with an oral antibiotic? Uh, and obviously, you could you know, list whatever that you want. Most of the recommendations are talking anywhere from uh, 10 to 14 days with an oral antibiotic, except some of the data with quinolones looked at seven days. Um, and about the same thing with IV uh, medications, and you see lots of things that are listed there. Uh, your favorite may or may not be there. Whoa, that was unusual. We don't really want to go that far because we've skipped way ahead. We're almost there, but not quite. Um, sorry to do this in reverse. That was unplanned. There we go. Okay, so you saw that. Uh, asymptomatic bacteria, uh, doing ASP, we unfortunately sometimes live and breathe this, although it's getting better. Uh, we're getting people educated more. And why do we have to deal with this? Because people collect urine because it's easy. We're all going to get rid of it, um, unless you were Howard Hughes and put it in a bottle and collect it. But most of us don't do that. Um, so it's easy to collect. It's easy to send to a laboratory. But the problem is interpretation of the results from that. Uh, sometimes people say, well, you know, there's white cells in it. It grew a bacteria. I have to treat it. You could argue the same thing if you swab their forearm and say, well, you know, I swabbed your arm. It grew bacteria. I guess I have to treat it, which would make no sense. So you have to look at the whole context of what's going on. If the person has no symptoms whatsoever of cystitis or even an upper tract infection, it's unclear why you got the urine in the first place. And then are you really going to use that to treat them? And I think the answer is maybe not. Um, so the presence of white cells in urine, the positive predictive value for that is 39% with bacteriuria. Um, the absence of that is 96%. So even you know, if you have white cells there, it's not 100% predictive for bacteriuria. So looking at all that, I think you know, trying to recommend to people that you have to look at this in context. Do they have symptoms of cystitis? Do they have dysuria? Do they have urgency, hesitancy, frequency without having something that um, perhaps a surgical procedure, something that could cause hesitancy or frequency? I am not doing that on purpose. I have no idea what's going on. I'm sorry. Um, something's really weird. Um, this is not good. We are going to, well, no. Okay, let me shoot. Okay, this is not good. I apologize. I have no idea. I just ran through this before we got on here and I was not having any of these issues. And I'm sorry, Richard, that, that certainly won't be too podcastable. Okay. Is something maybe uh, contacting your keyboard? Um, no. But I'm going to, I was running it off of my mouse. But um, so anyway, well, let's, this is where we were. Are you, you're still seeing this okay? 
Yes. Okay. Sorry. Um, okay. So, do they have any signs or symptoms? And I won't go and read these again because of time. Um, do they, and they have a positive urine culture. Is that the only thing that could be causing the condition that they have? And a lot of this, as you know, is someone's having a mental status change and they get a urine and it grows bacteria and they said, there you go. It's they have a UTI and it's causing a mental status change. There's a fair amount of literature that suggests that is extremely uncommon. Probably the biggest thing causing mental status change, especially in older people, is they get dehydrated. And since they're not hydrated, the urine is more condensed. It, it, it's certainly going to grow bacteria, especially if they've got in a male prostatic hypertrophy. So there could be reasons why that they're, you know, have bacteria. But that in itself usually is not the cause. And if you don't look for other things, you're going to miss probably the real diagnosis. So that's one of the problems. We won't go into talking a huge amount about um, asymptomatic bacteria. But some of the things that I do mention to people, if it's just, well, you know, and patients say, well, my, my urine's dark colored. Well, that's probably because you're dehydrated. Um, unless that there's something going on in your liver and, and really that's bilirubin or something else going on. So uh, changes in urine odor, if you eat asparagus, I guarantee you it's going to be not pleasant smelling. So that in itself doesn't really mean a whole lot. It depends on what you've eaten. Uh, changes in urine turbidity um, may not necessarily, you know, cloudy urine doesn't buy you a diagnosis of a UTI because there's, you know, proteins that people can spill. Uh, and some of them are just normal that might cause cloudy urine and the temperature of the urine. So those by themselves don't tell you that that's uh, a cystitis or a, an infection in the urinary tract. There really should be more things, especially symptoms. The time when it gets to be a little dicey sometimes is in our spinal cord injury patients where they may not have really good feeling in their lower abdomen. Um, and some of them will tell you that they know when they're having a UTI. And for some, that may be true, but in some others, it's I'm not sure about that. So those really need a little bit more of a closer inspection. But just changes in urine color or smell, uh, cloudiness is not really a good indicator of urinary tract infections. So since we're talking about asymptomatic bacteria, when should you screen and when should you offer treatment? If you're going to do uh, a urogenital procedure like a TERP, um, now you're disrupting mucosa and you really probably should get a pre-procedure urine to see if there's bacteria there. And if so, um, is it of an adequate amount that you could um, cause an infection by creating a portal of entry for those bacteria uh, to enter uh, now that there's mucosa that's missing? So you might want to prophylax them with what would be uh, reasonable because of the culture that you have and hopefully the susceptibilities. Um, any other procedures, sometimes if people are getting endoscopy or a cystoscopy and they're going to do something like injections or something into the bladder, sometimes, you know, our SEI patients, they'll be giving them um, uh, treatments for um, strictures or other things. So they, they may be doing something that can cause mucosal bleeding or other procedures, and it's recommended for that. And obviously in pregnant women to be screened, uh, the biggest issue there is going to be group B strep and to make sure that they get treated and uh, also to follow periodic screening after um, that you treat them to see if it's still there and is it still an ongoing issue. 
Um, there are harms in treating ASB. Um, that way they get exposed to antibiotics and they may get to um, experience one of the wonderful adverse effects of antibiotics. Um, you may give them C. diff by treating something that didn't need to be treated, and now you're giving them something that's going to be, need to be treated. Uh, the one that we see also not uncommonly is where people just keep treating asymptomatic bacteriuria is creating resistance. And like I mentioned, sometimes you just miss the real diagnosis until that it finally surfaces, or sometimes you just miss it altogether and it, it may cause them significant harm. Um, so when not to screen, you see it's a long list and I won't read that to you because most of you already know this. Um, there's really no recommendation for screening or treatment of asymptomatic bacteria in renal transplants or other uh, solid organ transplants per se. Um, some people will do it post um, renal transplantation for the first couple of months, but after that, there's, there's not great data uh, to do that. In Canada, they had a, a huge project um, through uh, AMMI, and uh, they called it symptomatic free P, let it be, which I thought was a great name for that. And they, as you see, they had the traffic lights and everything else for that. Um, and these were some of the articles where that this has been addressed as far as getting a urine screen before an elective procedure, whether it be CT surgery, kidney transplantation, um, and uh, orthopedic surgery, where that um, the data suggests that if there's no symptoms, this is not going to be something that's going to infect anything uh, that would be happening in a cardiothoracic area with transplants or orthopedic surgery. You're not going to get a hip infected because somebody has ASB. Uh, so now we'll move on to um, STDs and STI. The, fortunately, for the first time ever when this came out last year, um, it's now called the Sexually Transmitted Infections Treatment Guidelines. Um, as opposed to the STD treatment guidelines, but when you you look at um, the the link to get you there is still uh, CDC gov slash STD. Um, so you can have it download the the whole guidelines. It's 190 pages, so there's a lot to look through. Uh, or you can actually download it in a a more compact source. Uh, that's something that you'd like to have as a, a quick reference for things. So you see the uh, the links here that you can find actually on the CDC's uh, STI page as well. Um, is this really a problem in the United States? The, the average is about one in five people in the U.S. have an STI that may or may not be symptomatic. So uh, the guesstimate is probably about 68 million infections, and that was as of 2018 that COVID really put uh, a kind of a squash on is collecting a lot of data, as you well know. Um, probably about 26 million people that had new STIs in 2018, and half of those were younger age grouped individuals between the ages of 15 through 24, and we spent a lot of money um, managing these individuals. Uh, so when you look at the prevalence, um, probably the biggest um, incident and in prevalent sexually transmitted infection is HPV. Um, and then you see the list goes down. There's some that are actually uh, more uh, incident than prevalent, like trichomonas uh, with chlamydia. HIV, a little bit the other way. Gonorrhea, a little bit more uh, incident than prevalent. And um, But you see, all these numbers are, have been going up for the last several years. Um, we're, we have less resources, uh, resources to diagnose and manage individuals than we did, you know, even five years ago now. 
with uh, cutbacks because of the economy with COVID. A lot of people at CDC have been reassigned, about a third of them from uh, STI over to COVID, and that's been permanently. So not to read all this to you, but obviously there's increases in everything over um, the last few years. And those of you who've been with us for a while here, we, we see this not uncommonly. I know Dr. Cannell, I think, was telling me about they had uh, another sounded like ocular syphilis patient. Uh, we just had one of those a couple of months ago. So this is crazy. Um, I mean, this is the highest it's been and, and wasn't even this bad when we started having our uh, STD training center that we started back in um, 1998. I'm sorry, not even 1998, um, 1989, if I get it correct. Um, so there's a lot of things that are in the guidelines. I'm not gonna read all this to you, so we'll just skip ahead. Um, when you're looking at STI screening recommendations in women, uh, this is adapted from what they do in California and has been used in lots of other states. Depends on the age. Um, if it's less than 25, you see screening you know, annually or at least once for HIV and then more commonly with chlamydia and gonorrhea. If it's greater than uh, 25, uh, 25 or more, HIV at least once. But if they have risk factors uh, for gonorrhea, chlamydia, then obviously to treat for other things as you see with the additional screening. Uh, pregnancy, I think uh, everybody knows about first trimester screening for gonorrhea, chlamydia, syphilis, and hepatitis and HIV. Um, but in many states, there's a recommendation, or actually it's in the law, to screen at third trimester. And that's where that there have been issues where people get first trimester screening, but they, they don't get offered or don't follow up with third trimester screening. And that's where that we've seen increases with congenital syphilis. Um, so that's becoming a problem. Uh, and then HIV infected women, obviously there's a lot uh, to look for in annually screening for chlamydia, gonorrhea, trichomonas, and syphilis, and to do hepatitis screening at first visit or more frequently if there's an indication. Uh, the same issues, but in men, as you see, there's a lot more to look at. And a lot of this we're doing, as you know, if you're in the clinics, um, looking at, and, and this is with uh, men having sex with women, MSW, or men having sex with men, MSM. Um, you, not to go through all this, but you see for HIV-infected uh, MSWs, same kind of thing we kind of talked about, but for HIV-infected MSMs, more frequent testing uh, and different sites of testing for chlamydia and gonorrhea. Uh, syphilis testing at least annually, more frequently if they have uh, multiple partners or more of a chance of getting exposed. And um, it, it becomes a real um, problem for us to try and sometimes keep up with them and make sure that we're not missing people and we're not missing a site of infection. Uh, CDC has this as a handout, a guide to taking sexual history, and, and it's not bad, but it hasn't been updated for a few years. And um, it, it's not quite as um, focused now on, because uh, this was one of the questions is, you know, uh, what is are the identified genders of people? Um, we're getting kind of, as you know, away from looking at gender as a specific, and really with the other questions, like have you had sex with anyone? Um, and not really looking at what's the gender because uh, they may or may not identify with the gender. So a lot of questions to think about, um, and I know you've had some experience with doing this, especially if you've been at the health department, uh, especially if you've been at the STD clinic, uh, where that those are the questions that you would want to ask. Um, 
I just want to bring this up with partner management because uh, we don't really get sometimes this reminded to us, but if you have a patient, this is just looking at um, trying to do contact tracing. If you have a person who's um, been diagnosed with primary, secondary, or early latent syphilis within uh, 90 days um, preceding that diagnosis, that they really need to be uh, seen, they need to be evaluated, but they need to be epidemiologically treated for early syphilis. Uh, even if you test them, because remember that syphilis can incubate for up to 90 days. So if you have a negative test and it's even up to 90 days, you still should treat them for incubating syphilis because we don't have a, a test that can really define that any better than what we have right now. Um, there may be questions of what if it was more than 90 days with our sex partner of a person with late latent syphilis who has a high um, non-treponemal so test. If, if their RPR is greater than 1 to 32, but it's being diagnosed as late latent, what do you do with that? Um, you can always call the health department and discuss you know, odd issues with them. But always call the health department to report uh, a patient that you diagnose who has a, uh, a sexually transmitted infection that has uh, some of the other conditions that you should be aware of that are reportable to the state, county, and CDC. Um, the same thing with Neisseria gonorrhea chlamydia, except it's not 90 days, it's 60 days. Um, this is as of 2019, which is the most recent that I could find out of CDC, that um, about the same as others, except the, the percents are a little bit higher, the, the gross numbers here. Um, and it's always interesting when you look at chlamydia, uh, looking at the, the number of male patients who were diagnosed as having chlamydia. I did not do that. That may be a keyboard issue. I don't know. Let's go back and try it again. Sorry. Um, why do we not see as much in males as we do in females? You don't see it as much with gonorrhea, but you see it significantly different with chlamydia. So that's a question for the group. Why not? Because men aren't having sex and women are. No. It goes back to screening. Women get screened more frequently uh, looking at uh, cervical dysplasia, and it's probably not a bad idea to screen while that you're going to do a pelvic exam. Um, and that's where a lot get picked up. When do we do routine screening of males? Unless they're in a congregate area, like a, a, you know, a jail or some of the um, adolescent facilities that uh, people get assigned to for different reasons, they're probably not going to get screened unless they're symptomatic. And chlamydia is not quite as common in causing symptoms as gonorrhea is in males. So that becomes an issue in itself. Uh, just remember some of the clinical syndromes that chlamydia can cause. Uh, generally, what we're uh, talking about is what you see in the, the first column. We're not going to really talk about uh, infants at this point, but uh, remember that it, you can see a lot of the things there. Occasionally, perhaps chronic lung disease due to chlamydia, um, but really not much in the way of uh, sequela from that, but obviously some complications and sequela from chlamydia and in women uh, looking at ectopic pregnancies and infertility, chronic pelvic pain syndromes, et cetera, and in both of these reactive arthritis. Um, 
chlamydia is certainly not so much the sexually transmissible types uh, of uh, really looking at D through K varieties, um, but you, we do think about chlamydia causing conjunctivitis, um, but that would be uh, trachoma and not really so much sexually transmitted per se. Um, there's some actually over the last few years, some, some interesting thoughts that have been published about um, screening for chlamydia outside of the genital area and doing it in the uh, anorectal area and finding it being positive there. And then sometimes of people saying, there's no way I, I don't have, you know, anal receptive intercourse in both men and women. So how did it get there? Um, we know that in other animals, the chlamydia species can be detected in the GI tract. And it's, the question was, well, can it be that in humans? Um, there's not been, to my understanding, a huge study trying to look at that, but it, it does bring that question to bear. Um, so there was thoughts that maybe it was proposed um, extra genital transmission with uh, chlamydia trachomatis, and that might actually explain some of the treatment failures that have been seen in the past. Um, there is also this paper in Frontiers of Microbiology that looked at is there a strategy uh, that chlamydia can use to survive? And it, it appears from their data that um, when chlamydia get exposed to stressing conditions like you know, being exposed to antibiotics, they can change the way that some other bacteria do, that um, they can change from being a, um, a reticulate body not back to an elementary body, but into a persistent. Um, it's a non-cultivable state, but it is alive and it's not affected by antibiotics. So it may just be able, if you want to think of it as a hibernating area, I guess. Um, and that may be what's going on. And the other, as far as transmission, could it be because of um, oral sex uh, and either having contact with the vaginal area and then the rectal area or having, you know, um, oral sex and then maybe uh, having um, some of the chlamydia getting down into the GI tract and uh, taking up residency in colonic mucosa. Um, they're very interesting thoughts. Um, and I think that it might explain some of this, but th we need some more data with that. Uh, doing NAT testing uh, in anatomic females, uh, and I know that there's been a lot of data out there that it's, it's easier for women to self-collect their own swabs. Uh, the sensitivity and specificity are just as good as if a clinician collected them uh, in males. Uh, we usually do urine-collected NAT testing. If they come in and they're not able to pee in a cup, you can actually do a meatal swab uh, to do collection. And I can guarantee you men aren't really excited about having more than a meatal swab done. Uh, it's certainly not comfortable. Um, it's interesting as well with rectal and oropharyngeal uh, chlamydia um, that you can do self-collected swabs and they have the same sensitivity and specificity. And we usually don't see chlamydia in the oropharyngeal area, but we're gonna get a result of that because most of the NAT testing we do looks for chlamydia and gonorrhea. So, you know, we're really using that test to looking for gonorrhea, not so much chlamydia. Occasionally, you might find some chlamydia there. This is data from uh, the CDC's uh, SUN network, the STD surveillance network from 2018. This is looking in the MSM populations of these county health departments, uh, and you see a variety of them 
Uh, Florida was in Miami, uh, was the resultant clinic that was down there. And they tested for gonorrhea and chlamydia. Uh, this is looking at urogenital gonorrhea and chlamydia by these different sites. The lighter colored bars are um, looking at the, the people that were screened, that were tested, and the darker colored bars are the ones that were positive. So the green bars being uh, gonorrhea and chlamydia being the brown colored bars. And you see a lot of people screened with, you know, really for the most part, single digit uh, percents that were positive. But when you look actually at rectal specimens, um, you see that the, the amount of screening wasn't as high as the other, but the positivity was much higher, which is interesting. Um, there's data that looked at for asymptomatic rectal chlamydia, and this just came out last year, was that realistically doxycycline is more effective than azithromycin for um, asymptomatic rectal chlamydia. And when you look at that data, then what you see is um, and with the azithro arm, and this is microbiologic here in the intent to treat populations is 76% versus 96 plus percent, almost 97% with doxy. Um, adverse events, we think of adverse events maybe more with doxycycline than azithromycin, but realistically there is no difference with this. Um, it, it favored AZ slightly more. So, that's one of the reasons why the recommendation switched from using azithromycin as the kind of go-to drug to treat chlamydia, now to be recommended um, to use doxycycline for treatment. Uh, some of the other in males, non-gonococcal urethritis issues with a focus on mycoplasma genitalium that's become more of an issue uh, that we've understood over the last several years. Um, it is certainly now a, another recognized cause of non-gonococcal urethritis. Uh, the role of this with cervicitis and pelvic inflammatory disease is still emerging. It, it does seem sometimes to be associated with that. I don't know that we know understand the exact um, mechanisms for that at this point, but it has been detected and does seem uh, that it, it, it is involved in some fashion with cervicitis and PID. We can test for it. There is an Aptum uh, um, M genitalium NAT test, which we do not have at this facility, but uh, it is something that if you really needed it, um, you might be able to get it sent out. Um, and again, the treatment implications with uh, M genitalium, uh, azithromycin tends to be more effective than doxycycline, but unfortunately there's emerging resistance to AZ. Um, there is testing. Um, and some of the Aptima testing, uh, and there is resistance testing that, to be honest, I'm not sure where that you get this. Um, if someone knows, if they put it in chat, that would be great. Um, so if you don't know uh, that you can get resistance testing on M genitalium and you test and it's positive, uh, the CDC recommendations are to treat with doxycycline 100 milligrams orally twice a day for seven days, and then follow that with moxifloxacin 400 milligrams orally once daily for seven days. Um, and that may be what we end up doing uh, in individuals who really don't have funding for, you know, the different testing for NAT testing and resistance testing. Um, the other thing in males that can cause an issue is uh, trichomonas, that you can, and some men get urethritis due to trichomonas vaginalis. Um, there is a T vaginalis uh, NAT that's uh, a urine analyte 
And so you can do that. Or again, if there's not funding to do that, then um, if you've treated for M genitalium and chlamydia and they're still symptomatic, you could certainly treat uh, with two grams of metronidazole uh, as a single dose. And if that doesn't really work, you may want to consider having them seen by urology to see if they have an issue with a stricture or something else that's causing them uh, discomfort. Um, just to quickly go through and show a few pictures, some of these we've collected over the years. Um, the two at the bottom, uh, one was, I forget who gave me the one in the bottom right. I think the bottom left is the CDC picture. Uh, the top one was actually from here. Years ago, it was a gentleman who came in and uh, Dr. Gary Bergen, who was our fellow, was moonlighting in the ED when it was much smaller. And the guy came in and thought he might have gonorrhea. And as you can tell, he was correct. And just the amount of periurethral inflammation from that, I thought was very impressive. Um, this other gentleman, as you can see, he, he's got, uh, if you will, a twofer. He's got a discharge that turned out to be gonorrhea and he's got a, a meatal wart, which is gonna need different treatment. Um, we noted that there was a recent change in December of 2020 because of a couple of different things going on. We um, looked at treating gonorrhea and we were using combination therapy with um, ceftriaxone and azithromycin. And the thought was to decrease the pressure on third generation cephalosporins, because if we lost that, we probably wouldn't have effective therapy in the United States to, to manage gonorrhea. Uh, by doing that, what we effectively did was to show which one would generate resistance quicker, and it was azithromycin. So um, the stewardship part of this said, you know, we, we have to stop doing this. We've got AZ resistance that's crazy, uh, up almost to 6% over the years. So we stopped doing that, and it was a great time to look at ceftriaxone, pharmacodynamics, and kinetics, and found out we may very well be underdosing people with giving them 250 milligrams. So the recommendation was to increase that dose to 500 milligrams as a single dose if you weigh 150 kilos or less, which is pretty much about 300 pounds. And if you weigh more than 300 pounds, the dose goes up to a gram. Um, you probably aren't going to gain a lot of friends by giving a gram of subtriaxone IM, but um, it, especially not if you put it in sterile water, which they probably come at you with a baseball bat. But um, we need the higher doses to really assure that people are getting adequate treatment. So it's important to make sure that uh, we educate people so they're not using the old strategy of ceftriaxin or azithromycin. I guarantee you some people haven't been notified of this. So uh, hopefully it will become less and less. Uh, if you're not <clears throat> sure if there's chlamydia, if you haven't excluded it, and uh, you have somebody who's symptomatic, then you know it's not unreasonable to give them doxycycline uh, standard dose 100 milligram twice a day for seven days. Uh, if it's a clinic that doesn't happen to have ceftriaxone for whatever the reason, that you can use uh, suffixime tablets, but instead of one tablet, it's two. It's 800 milligrams as a single dose and the same recommendations with chlamydia uh, treatment. If they haven't been uh, diagnosed or treated with that, then you could offer the same thing we just mentioned. Um, I didn't highlight the, the genomycin, azithromycin, because two grams of azithromycin is really difficult to take. Uh, we try and stay away from azithromycin if possible, and there is actually uh, data with the 240 milligram of genomycin failing in some uh, situations. Um, I just wanted to mention, it's interesting because people have been asking about a gonorrhea vaccine. 
um, the uh, meningococcal B vaccine gave us a first look that we may be able to modify that and come up with the gonorrhea vaccine. Uh, during an outbreak of gonorrhea in New Zealand, they looked at uh, individuals who received group B meningococcal vaccine um, that remember is the outer membrane vesicle form of that, that's the OMV, and found that about a third of people who had received it were less likely to get gonorrhea compared to chlamydia trachomanus. Um, which was really interesting because nobody thought that, you know, a, a men, uh, meningitis vaccine would be effective in preventing gonorrhea. So there's ongoing trials with this um, at, at different places around the world. And one of the sites is actually at UAB. Um, looking at this to see, uh, is this something that we can improve on? So when you're looking at this outer membrane vesicle area, can we perfect that to really be better for Neisseria gonorrhea, uh, as well as with meningococcal uh, type B. And I have no idea. What is the REST API? What are the benefits? And how are they fundamental to your cloud application development? I have no I'm idea what's going on. I'm IBM Cloud, and I'm gonna answer that for you today. I have no, no idea who's please talking please about what. Hang on just a second. Let's jump in with an example. Let's say that you work for an ice cream shop and you're trying to build a web application to show the flavors of ice cream that are in stock that day. Okay, I'm going to get rid of all that. Can you still see the presentation? This is yes, we can see it. I have no idea. This computer is, has a, a mind of itself and I, I apologize for that. Okay, um, not to belabor this, we're going to run out of time, but these are syphilitic shankers. So um, ones that you can see of the initial infection. Um, and then looking at secondary syphilis and a wide variety of its manifestations, whether it be a rash that you can see, and actually looks in some people a little different than that. Um, and um, looking at the phase, this is actually secondary syphilis, but it looks more like acne vulgaris. Um, also looking in the mouth at mucus patches, and this was actually a patient that we saw down in Miami in the uh, STD clinic there who had condylomata lata. Remember that latum is Latin for flat, so these were the flat warts of secondary syphilis. See if I can find the button now with this. There we go. Um, I'm not going to go through all of this, but um, here we use the reverse sequence algorithm for testing for syphilis. And what you're getting is a, uh, a testing treponemal test. That's, uh, we used to do that uh, for blood donations by using an MHATP as a screening test and then using a different treponemal test for confirmatory. So you're screening with this um, screening treponemal test. If that's positive, then what we do here is we reflex it to an RPR. And here we reflex it also to a TPPA as a confirmatory treponemal test because sometimes this one can be false positive, especially if these two are negative. Um, but it also creates a, a potential problem is that if this is positive and the second treponemal test is positive and the RPR is non-reactive, what does that mean? Well, it could be that they're having a prozone reaction and the RPR uh, is being overwhelmed by antibody and not enough of um, cardiolipin. 
to really say that it's positive. So you may want to retest those individuals in two to four weeks to see if their RAPR becomes positive. But if they aren't really are denying sexual, uh, recent sexual activity, um, and they can't recall ever being treated for syphilis, the CDC recommends that you treat them for late latent syphilis. And realistically, the recommendation for that was that then they can say they've been treated for syphilis. So they don't, if this ever comes up again, then they don't have to get, you know, three shots of benzathine penicillin. Um, so I won't spend a lot of time on this because you could spend about 45 minutes talking about syphilis serology. I do want to leave you with um, just if you're going to treat for syphilis, you want an RPR that's done very close to the time you're going to treat them. You don't want an RPR that's you know, like two months old, because that RPR may have gone up significantly. And if you treat them, then um, you treated for, let's say, an RPR of 32, and now you treated them and you're you're checking them at six months, and now the RPR is one to 64. And you're like, oh my God, it went up. Um, I may have to retreat them again. Maybe not. Maybe they were a one to 256 or higher, one to 512. You treated them, and now they've got more than a twofold or a fourfold reduction, which is two dilution decrease. So make sure that you get the RPR really close to when you're going to treat them so you get the, the best follow up information. The other is if they have a low titer, uh, they're probably not going to decline as fast as people with a high titer. Um, treatment hasn't really changed. There is actually an ongoing um rct trial and i didn't put it in here but again looking at one dose versus three doses for primary syphilis um which i thought was interesting um this has been looked at uh, if you look at the the new england journal back in 1997 uh, this is looking at enhanced therapy of giving benzathine penicillin plus um three grams of azithrom i'm sorry is it not azithrom of amoxicillin a day um versus just standard therapy and on uh, HIV and non-HIV infected people and there's absolutely no difference. So um, the recommendation still is to give for uh, primary syphilis and secondary syphilis and early latent syphilis just 2.4 million units of benzathine penicillin. Um, alternatives would be doxycycline and perhaps ceftriaxone. I have no idea what this thing is doing. Um, uh, azithromycin is really a no-go. Uh, because of resistance, there is the uh, A2058G uh, mutation, which confers uh, significant azithromycin resistance. It's um, not recommended for MSMs or pregnancy, and we have no idea what the extent of this is across the United States. Most of these studies were done in San Francisco area uh, several years ago. Uh, late latent the same thing of basically using 7.2 of um, benzathine penicillin, which is 2.4 once a week for three consecutive weeks. What do you do if people um, miss a week? Uh, essentially, if you're not pregnant, you can miss only one dose. You have to get the other ones, and it's best if you're going to miss one, you get uh, the first two in, miss a week, and then get the third one. But if you're pregnant, you miss a dose, you start all over again, which they don't really want to hear. Um, I'm not going to spend too much time because we don't have any looking at genital herpes, but, you know, this knife cut sign, which you can see um, is more just a linear ulcer. Uh, we had a patient in the clinic who used to call it a haircut. We thought it, he was talking about a real haircut until we found out what he was talking about. Um, most of the um, herpes that we see is because of asymptomatic shedding. 
And um, the things that had come out about this, obviously, I'm not going to go through this, but the biggest thing was that if you're using the Herpes Select uh, HSV2 ELISA test, it may be falsely positive at a low index value between 1.2 to 3.5. So you'd need to use a different kit, like a bio kit, or send it to University of Washington. It's going to cost you probably about $200 plus, uh, but it is felt to be the uh, the test to compare all the others to, even though it's not FDA approved. Um, we know that the herpes select HSV-1, ELISA is insensitive for HSV-1, probably should not use that if you're going to look for HSV-1. And there's not really any changes to um, the recommendation for therapy. Oops. Uh, I did want to mention to you that in clinical trials not available yet are pretelivir and uh, amenavir, and if I can say it correctly, which I probably didn't, um, aminamavir. Uh, these are helicase primase complex inhibitors, which is different than DNA polymerase mutants and may be useful in the future in treating resistant herpes. Uh, trick, the only thing I'm going to tell you is that the recommendations in women now is to treat uh, for 500 milligrams twice a day for seven days with either metronidazole or tenidazole whether you're treating trichomonas or bacterial vaginosis. So that makes it easier if you're thinking about treating women. And if you have in a, a, uh, in a resource depleted area, if you will, and the only thing you have is pH paper, you get a vaginal pH. If it's greater than 4.5 and you have a, a detectable amine odor test, that tells you it's either going to be BV or trichomonas. And guess what? It's the same treatment for either one. So all you need realistically is a piece of pH paper. So I, I'm going to just skip the case here, uh, which essentially was here's a, a poor lady who has some patchy hair loss, recent rash, has an RPR that's significant, TPPA positive, but said that she had hives, wheezing, and dyspnea after she got penicillin in the past, and which one would you give her? I've asked this question before, and somebody said, well, it depends on if you like her or not. If you didn't like her, give her benzathine penicillin, which I think would be obviously inappropriate. But what would you give her? The other thing that's important is she's not pregnant. Doxycycline. Uh, ceftriaxone, you could argue that. There's more data suggests that it could be effective. But um, realistically, you can give doxycycline 100 milligram twice a day for two weeks and then just follow her RPR and TPPA. If there was an issue, where that maybe there was a concern that she had um, CNS involvement with this, then you could desensitize her if you really needed to, but you could use doxycycline with this. And again, I'm sorry for all the glitches and everything else that I had no idea what is going on with this computer.